The Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences. Written and performed by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Donde esta junkies? This weekend I'm at my nephew's wedding. While I recorded this intro early, my guess is I am there having a blast. Future me is probably still carving out time to work on the second draft of Shakedown, book one of the Crypt series, whenever possible. I use an iPad to write when I'm on the road most of the time. It works really well, and since it's small, you can sneak in a few words here and there when no one is looking. Soon I'll be back home in San Diego and sync everything up to the old MacBook, and then we'll be in the home stretch to submit this manuscript to the publisher. And after that, I'm going to take a little rest, junkies. You may never hear from me again. Now, let's get caught up on the story, and then we're all going to die penniless and insane. Previously on The Rookie, Quentin has been with the team only a few days, and he's already in Coach Hokor's doghouse. If he doesn't memorize every player on the defenses of nine opposing teams, he'll never get out of that doghouse, and he'll never become the starting quarterback of the INF Krakens. Quentin's room on the touchback was empty, save for a bed, a table with two round stools, a large vertical equipment locker, and a wide couch that sat in front of the holotank. He sat on that couch, staring at the life-size image projected by the holotank. The current image was a human football player, his jersey a series of horizontal light blue and gray stripes. The computer droned away with the player's stats. Kitiara Lomax, third-year linebacker for the Big Diggers, named All-Pro last year, 6'10", 423 pounds. Last year accumulated 52 tackles and 12 sacks. Last clock time in the 40-yard dash, 4.1 seconds. Quentin clicked his remote, and the image shifted to a Sklorno player also dressed in a light blue and gray striped jersey. Arkham, fifth-year cornerback for the Big Diggers. 187 pounds, four interceptions last year, all in the second half. The computer continued to rattle off statistics, but Quentin looked away from the image and stared at his blank wall. His legs gave off a subdued but ever-present burning feeling. The result of 100 laps ran for a variety of transgressions, each one as unexpected as the last. His face also burned, but that wasn't from physical exertion. It was a new feeling, and he found it quite unacceptable. Donald Pine at your door. Oh, man. Enter. Quentin didn't bother to get up. He hit the button on the remote. Arkham disappeared, replaced by a huge key lineman named Predak Harat. Better watch out for him. Last year he hit me so hard he knocked me out of the game. Quentin said nothing. Pine crossed in front of Quentin and sat down on the couch. We missed you at team dinner, kid. What's up? I gotta study. Hoker wants me to know all these damn players. 
Pine nodded. Yeah, you gotta know this stuff. But hey, you gotta eat, right? I'm not hungry now. I'll just have something later. The truth was, he was famished, but he had no intention of hitting the mess hall when the rest of the team was present. They'd all watched him run the endless laps, heard Hokor scream at him for various mistakes. It's no big deal, kid. Hokor rips on all the rookies. Pine spoke as if he'd read Quentin's thoughts. He's got to shake out the weak ones, you know. He's going to spend most of his time busting on you because you're a quarterback. It'll get worse before it gets better. Tomorrow we do route passing, but this time against the defensive backs. And the next day's practice is full contact, so watch out for those key defensive linemen. Quentin shrugged. I'm not worried about some damn salamander. I just have to get these stupid players memorized. Pine's eyebrows rose up in surprise. Salamander, eh? Man, don't let them hear you say that. They'll tear your fucking head right off. And you say you're not worried about him? Man, you better worry about him. Our nose tackle. My Aunt Inco weighs 650 pounds and can bench press 1,200 pounds for crying out loud. And you're not worried. I've been on this team for two years, and they're under strict orders not to touch me, and I'm worried. Quentin turned and looked at Pine. He'd seen Pine run, and the man had good reason to be worried. Quentin was faster, more agile, stronger, and just plain tougher than Donald Pine. Thanks for the advice. Now, if you don't mind, I've got studying to do. Pine shrugged. Suit yourself, kid. If you need any help, you let me know. Hey, maybe I can talk to Scarborough, get you some after-practice reps, you know, get you used to the speed of the game. I don't need any help from a fucking cricket. Pine stared, then shook his head. Yeah, you know, you seem so normal on the outside. I, I forget where you come from. Just remember, kid, those salamanders and those crickets, they're your teammates. You may have won games single-handedly back in the PNFL, but it doesn't work that way here. Thanks, Pops. I'll remember that. Quentin clicked the remote control to bring up the next player. Pine stood, shook his head one more time, and walked to the door. He stopped just as the door swished open and looked back at Quentin. Listen, kid, I'm not much for giving advice where it's not asked, but I feel you deserve to hear something. To play this game, you've got to know your history. Until the Kretorakians took over, all the races were more likely to slaughter each other than talk, let alone work together. There's hatred here that goes way beyond anything related to sports. I'm not the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, but I figured something out a long time ago. For these warring races to play together as a team, someone has to step up and lead. And leading in the GFL means you forget your bigotry and get along with everyone. And it's a fucking hard job, man. Damn near impossible. I expect everyone to get along and play as a unit. Warburg is one thing, but you're a quarterback. And as such, people tend to follow your lead. Your racism will cause problems, and I won't tolerate that. When you play for my team, you will respect your teammates. Quentin felt his anger rising. Just who in the hell did this guy think he was? Your team? You just keep on living in that fantasy world, Pine, and you'll be a happy man in the retirement home. Because it's not going to be your team that much longer. Pine stared back hard, then sneered. Whatever you say, rookie. It'll be your team, all right. It'll be your team when I decide to hang it up. Until then, you haven't got what it takes to be a starter, and you certainly don't have what it takes to beat me. Pine walked out of the room. 
Quentin turned off the holotank and stared at the now blank wall. He hated the salamanders, he hated crickets, and he hated blue boy Donald Pine. But they would all learn. The Krakens were Quentin Barnes' team now, and sooner or later, everyone would play by his rules. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The second day of practice saw Quentin, Pine, and Itzhak once again descend the lift into the orange end zone. The Sklorno receivers were there, this time in full pads, but so were humans and Quith Warriors, the linebackers, and eight new Sklorno, the defensive backs. All the defensive backs wore black jerseys, while the offense wore orange. Did they worship Pine too? Quentin asked, while pointing to the Sklorno defensive backs. Well, they do, but in a different way. He leads the team, he unifies us, and that makes him greater than a normal being. The receivers view catching passes as a blessing, almost like a gift from God. The defenders see a pass as a challenge given to them by God, a test of the will and physical abilities. To continuously fail to stop the passing games means they're unworthy of or something like that. The three quarterbacks reached the end zone and started to warm up. Three orange-jerseyed humans jogged from the center of the field to greet them. Warburg and the other two tight ends he had not yet met. Warburg gave Quentin a warm handshake. Quentin... This is Yotaro Kobayashi and Pancho Salzgiver. Quentin shook their hands. Yotaro was the biggest at seven foot one, about 380. He had a shaved head and three short parallel scars on each cheek. Salzgiver had pure white skin, just like Itzak, with ice blue eyes and white hair. At six foot ten, about 355, he was the smallest of the three tight ends. Quentin shook both of their hands. Hokor's hovercart floated down and everyone pulled on their helmets. Let's get started. Starting O. Get on the goal line. We'll work the tight package. Quentin started to move towards the goal line when he heard the word starting O. Then he remembered that he was not the starter. Pine lined up on the goal line, ass facing the end zone. Kobayashi lined up as the left tight end and Peter Warburg as the right. Scarborough lined up wide right, and Haywick two steps inside of her and two steps behind her. The defensive back showed bump-and-run coverage. 
playing directly in front of Scarborough and Haywick. The three linebackers spread out in their normal positions for a 3-4 defense. That meant three linebackers, four defensive linemen, and four defensive backs. The outside linebackers were Quith Warriors, one of whom wore number 58. He was the guard that had stun-sticked Mumakilowi into submission on the landing dock back at the combine. The middle linebacker, number 50, was human. He radiated lethality in a way that Quentin had never seen or felt. Pine barked out the signals, and the receivers sprinted out in their patterns. Pine dropped back five steps, planted, and bounced a half-step forward. The receivers sprinted out on their pass patterns. Scarborough angling inside. Haywick sprinting right down the field on a post. Kobayashi, the tight end, stopped at 10 yards and curled in for a hook, while Warburg rolled out to the flat. The defense immediately dropped into coverage. Sklerno defensive backs drifted into a zone, each player responsible for covering a certain area of the field. The dangerous-looking human linebacker, number 50, backpedaled straight back five yards. But it was the movement of the Quith outside linebackers that shocked Quentin. They didn't run. They rolled to their positions, tucking up into a ball and rolling out, literally, to cover the flats before they popped open like some jumping spider, arms and pedipalps out and waiting. Kobayashi was open on the hook, but Pine didn't throw. He checked through his reads. First read, second read, third read, fourth. Then turn and gun the ball to Peter Warburg, who had hooked up at four yards from the line of scrimmage when he drifted into the flat. Warburg caught the pass and turned upfield before Hokor blew the whistle. The players lined up again. Quentin nudged Itzak. Hey, why didn't Pine throw it to Kobayashi? Will you see number 50 there? Itzak pointed to the human linebacker. That's John Tweedy, starting middle linebacker, all tier two last year. He's got phenomenal quickness. Warburg looked open, but even on a 10-yard bullet, Tweedy can get to the ball. He also pretends to be slower than he really is. He'll do it for most of the game if he has to, to lull the quarterback into a pattern. When the ball is finally thrown to Tweedy's zone, it's because the quarterback thinks he can't get to it. He had six interceptions last year. Quentin looked at the bulky linebacker. Something seemed to be on his face inside the helmet. Scrolling letters. It was hard to see, but somehow still legible under the face mask. What's up with his face? Does that say, you rookies smell like nasty pussy? <laughs> yeah, probably. Tweety has a full body tattoo. A tattoo? But it's moving. Sure, it's an image implant. Lots of guys in the league have tats. Why, you've never seen one before? Quentin shook his head. No, not like that. They embed little light emitters in the skin. They can make changing patterns, words, whatever. Tweety went for the full package. Complete skin coverage with a cyberlink. He can think of words and they play in his face, his forehead, his chest, whatever. Tweety stood and pointed at Pine. How's that arthritis, old man? Pine rose up from center. It's a little rough, Johnny. You gonna give me another rub down like you did last night? The entire team laughed, including Tweety, who flipped Pine off with both hands. Stop this human bonding nonsense! Run the damn play! Pine settled in under center and got back to business. Quentin watched carefully as the offense he'd studied on the holos and on his message board actually came to life. Each play had several patterns for each receiver, depending on how the defense lined up. Were they in woman-to-woman? Were they in a prevent defense? 
Were they in a zone underneath with too deep coverage over the top? At the snap of the ball, the receiver had to read the coverage and make route adjustments. These adjustments were just as planned as the original play itself. If the linebacker blitzed, the tight end changed his route from an out pattern to a short hook to curl up behind where the linebacker should have been before he sprinted for the quarterback. If the linebacker faded to a middle zone, the tight end would keep his out pattern, taking him outside the reach of the linebacker. And if the linebacker bit a run fake and came forward, then dropped back, the tight end changed from the short hook to a 15-yard streak, allowing him to go farther down the field behind the linebacker. The quarterback had to know the patterns for every receiver for every play and the variations on every pattern based on the defensive alignment. On top of that, the quarterback had to know every pattern adjustment for every route based on the reaction of the defensive players after the snap of the ball. Each receiver had at least three pattern options. For a four-receiver play, that meant four patterns multiplied by around six defensive sets multiplied by three pattern options, resulting in 72 possible passing routes for every play. The quarterback had to read the defensive coverage while dropping back, know where his receivers were supposed to be, and usually make the decision to throw in less than four seconds of the snap. And that was just the beginning. Defenses did everything they could to disguise coverages, so the quarterback would think he saw one thing when in fact the defense was setting a trap. The quarterback had to be able to see through this ruse within his four seconds. The most complicated aspect of the whole thing was that the quarterback often had to read the defense and throw the ball before the receiver made his cut, so the ball would be there as soon as the receiver turned. For this to work, both the quarterback and the receiver had to make the same read at the same time, or the ball might sail long as the receiver turned up short for a hook pattern. And then there was the obvious fact that most football fans forgot. The quarterback had to do all of this while 600-pound key linemen and 300-pound blitzing human and quith warrior linebackers and the occasional fast-as-lightning blitzing Sklorno safety were trying to get to him and forcibly remove his head from his shoulders. And yet the stereotype of the stupid jock had persisted for centuries. It never ceased to amaze Quentin when people thought football players were just muscle-bound morons. He'd love to see a physics professor do algorithmic calculations while being chased around by a 600-pound monster that was known for eating its enemies alive. Pine ran through all the plays, effortlessly reading every defensive adjustment. His skill clearly frustrated the defense, but at the same time, Pine usually completed passes for only a 5- or 10-yard gain. He ran through 30 plays with no interceptions, completing 22 passes, but only three for 15 yards or more. It's sock! Take over! Quentin bit his lip in anger. This second-rate benchwarmer was taking reps before he was. Quentin calmed himself. This early in the season, each quarterback would get the same amount of reps. Once the first game was out of the way, however, practice time would become so precious that very little of it could be used for second- and third-string quarterbacks. So for now, he had to bite his tongue and wait. If Donald Pine made the offense look easy, Itzhak illustrated how difficult it really was. He seemed to read the defense fairly well, but he did not possess Pine's pinpoint accuracy. Itzhak finished his 30 plays with two interceptions 
18 completions, and two passes for 15-plus yards. All right, Barnes, get in there. Let's see what you can do. And remember, this isn't punting practice. The defense laughed at Hokor's insult, and Quentin's face turned red. Obviously, the entire team knew of his embarrassing incident the day before. Well, they wouldn't be laughing for long. Quentin swaggered to the line. He'd watched the other two quarterbacks, and he'd watched the defenders. He knew how to run things. He lined up, feeling a surge of adrenaline pump through his veins. As Quentin bent down to start the play, the defensive players called out to him, starting with John Tweedy. Hey, rookie! Throw it my way, pussy boy! Make me look good for the coach! Come on, human! Called Shoto the Bright, the quith warrior that played right outside linebacker. You purest nation racist scum! Come make us subspecies look bad! The left outside linebacker, number 58, Virek the Mean, also got in on the act. You're going back to your third world planet in a body bag. I should have killed you on the landing dock at the combine and just got it over with. Quentin smiled. He hadn't been taunted since halfway through his first season of football back home. It had taken his opponents that long to learn what he was all about. That no matter what they said, he was going to tear their defense apart. The defense closed in for bump-and-run coverage. The cornerbacks, Berea and Davenport, lined up directly over Scarborough and Haywick, respectively. Quentin scanned through the rest of the defense, but he'd already seen what he needed to see. Hut, hut, hut! He took his strong five-step drop. Berea shoved Scarborough at the line of scrimmage, but Scarborough shucked by her and streaked down the sidelines. Quentin saw Stockbridge, the strong safety defensive back, moving over to help Berea with coverage, but it was already too late. Quentin waited, waited, then fired. The ball tore through the air on a shallow arc, hitting Scarborough in stride 30 yards downfield. Stockbridge pushed Scarborough out of bounds for a 35-yard gain. The Sklorna receivers on the sidelines hooted and clicked and jumped with excitement. You took too long, Barnes. You'd have never got that pass off. You've got to go through your reads quicker. Quentin put his hand on his hips and stared up at Hokor, who hovered 15 yards above the field in his little cart. Quentin stared for a few seconds, then walked back to the line, shaking his head. He called out the next set, which featured one tight end and three receivers. Scarborough lined up wide to the left, Haywick and Denver wide to the right. Kobayashi lined up at tight end. The defensive backs quickly shifted, taking out Chodo the Bright, a linebacker, and bringing in another Scalorno defensive back. Quentin surveyed the field, running through the routes in his mind, matching them against the defensive set. Haywick was covered woman-to-woman by Davenport. Haywick's pattern in that coverage called for a post pattern straight down the field, and Quentin didn't think Davenport, the defensive back, could handle Haywick's blazing speed. Quentin tapped his stomach in a quick bada-bap, then barked out signals and snapped the ball. He dropped back five steps, looked left to throw off the defense, then turned and launched the ball deep. As soon as he let it go, he saw his mistake. Davenport broke off woman-to-woman coverage and dropped into zone coverage, where she was responsible for defending a particular area of the field. Stockbridge, the strong safety, had responsibility for the deep outside zone, where Quentin had thrown. Correctly reading the deep coverage of Stockbridge, Haywick broke off her post and hooked up at 15 yards. 
the ball sailed over her head, and Stockbridge swept in for an easy interception. John Tweedy let out a grating, evil, <laughs> mocking laugh. <laughs> Like a stuttering buzzsaw. Ah, thanks, rookie. You just answered Haywick's prayers. <laughs> the human defenders laughed, and quivering pedipalps showed the Quith warrior's amusement. Quentin's face felt hot under his helmet. Davenport had easily disguised her coverage by running stride for stride with Haywick until the defender reached her assigned zone coverage. It all happened so fast seemingly twice as fast as anything happened back in the PNFL. Quentin had thrown too early. The team fell silent as Hokor's cart lowered to the field. Barnes, how many reads did you make that time? Quentin looked down. One, coach. Hokor's petty palps quivered, and clearly not from humor. One. You just turned the ball over again. Oh, relax, coach. I got it now. Trust me. Hokor just stared at him with his one big eye. Run it again. He got back in his cart and it rose noiselessly to 15 feet, hovering behind the end zone. Quentin lined up for another stab, but his confidence had suddenly abandoned him. Things were moving too fast. He ran the same play, saw the defensive coverage, and opted for a short dump to the tight end. Even that was almost an interception. Virak the mean tightened up into a ball and rolled sideways, not as fast as a Sklorno, but pretty damn fast, a rolling blur that popped open at the last second when the ball drew near. The next play, Quentin checked off his primary and secondary route, which recovered, and fired a short crossing pass to the tight end. And as soon as he let go, he knew he'd fucked up again. Tweedy had seemed to be yards away from the play, but he stepped in front of Peter Warburg and picked off the ball. This time, Hokor didn't come down, but it didn't matter. Tweedy's buzzsaw laughter roared across the field. <laughs> You're my kind of quarterback, Barnes. I just wish you were playing for the Woo Wall Crawlers instead of us. It would make my job a lot easier. <laughs> laughter and quivering pedipalps were all Quentin saw and heard. His face burned with embarrassment. You're not utilizing your arm strength. Quentin turned to see Pine next to him. Tweedy's given you the same cushion he gives me. But you throw much harder than I do. If you want to shut him up, go after Tweedy again. But this time, throw it hard. These tight ends are much better than the guys you played with in the PNFL. And as soon as you burn Tweedy a couple times, he'll close the cushion. Then you call crossing routes over his head. Now Pine was giving him advice as if he were some schoolboy playing pickup ball. It was the final insult. Go after Tweedy, who just picked off a pass? Did Pine think Quentin was stupid? Pine obviously wanted to make him look bad. Get the fuck out of my huddle, Pine. I don't need any help from a fucking blue boy. Pine leaned back as if he'd just been slapped. He stared, shook his head sadly, then turned and jogged back to stand next to Itzhak. Hey, Quentin, is daddy helping little Quentin play the game? <laughs> Quentin's patience hit a dead end. He pointed his finger at the big linebacker. Fuck him and fuck you too, Tweety. Tweety's mocking smile turned into a gleeful snarl. Well, show me what you got, bitch. So far, you ain't got shit. Across Tweety's face, the tattoo scrolled a message. It said, I'll poke out your eyes and skull fuck you. Quentin watched it for a second, then shook his head, trying to concentrate. Quentin ran through ten more plays his frustration growing with each pass. 
he threw two more interceptions, his third and fourth of the day, one on a deep pass to Scarborough, and one where Virac the Mean rolled forward in addition to rolling sideways and sprang open right in front of a hooking Kobayashi. You've got two plays left, Barnes. Let's see if you can continue your ineptitude. The defense continued to taunt him. He was so mad, he could barely see, barely think. This hadn't been what he'd expected at all. He lined up for his second-to-last play, a three-receiver set with Warburg on the right as the tight end. Quentin dropped back, trying to read the coverage. Within two seconds, he saw that all of the receivers were well covered. He checked through the routes, but no one was open. Frustration exploded in his head as he read his last option. Peter Warburg on a crossing route, only to see John Tweedy lurking close by. Rage billowing over, Quentin reared back and vented all of his anger on a laser blast pass. The ball was a blur as it shot forward. Tweedy sprang at it, but too late, and fell flat on his face. The ball slammed into Warburg's chest, hitting him so hard it knocked him backwards. Warburg stumbled, bobbled the ball, but hauled it in before he dropped to his ass. For the first time that afternoon, the defense fell silent. Tweedy got up slowly, staring hatefully at Quentin. Quentin blinked, his rage clearing away, and one thought echoing through his head. If you want to shut him up, go after Tweedy again, but this time hard. The receivers returned to the mini huddle. Quentin called his last play, a two-tight-end set, and made sure to call a deep crossing route behind Tweedy. At the snap, he dropped back three steps and reared back to throw a hook to Warburg. Tweedy jumped forward much sooner than he'd done all day. Quentin pump-faked, then tossed an easy pass over Tweedy's head to the crossing tight-end Kobayashi. Quentin turned and looked back at Pine, who simply smiled and shrugged. After Quentin's last pass, the team started jogging back to the tunnel, headed for the locker room. Quentin stopped when Hokor called to him. As his teammates disappeared into the tunnel, Quentin waited while Hokor's cart floated down to the field. Barnes, you have to make your reads faster. Quentin felt embarrassed, but he couldn't argue. He felt like he was moving in slow motion out there. He'd finished up 10 completions in 30 passes with four interceptions. Four interceptions. And only his first pass went for more than 15 yards. Who's the starting quarterback for the Woo Wall Crawlers? Jacobina. Great vertical leap, but not very strong and easily blocked. Two-year veteran. What's her weakness? She has trouble reaching maximum vertical leap during a full sprint. How do you beat her? Well, coach, you throw deep and high, make the receiver have to really sprint and jump to make the catch. Jacobina can't usually match the jump if the ball's thrown correctly. That's good. And their second-string nose guard? Quentin opened his mouth to speak, then shut it. Oh, come on, coach. He's just a lineman. All I have to do is avoid him. I don't need to know anything about him. Hokor's petty palps twitched. Just once. He used one of those petty palps to point to the sidelines. Start running. Aw, coach, for how long? Ten laps. Come on, coach, this is bullshit. The petty palps twitched again, and this time, they kept twitching. Barnes, you're correct. That is bullshit. Did I say ten laps? Twenty laps. What? You just said ten. Did I? 
Actually, I thought it was 30. Yes, I said 30 laps. Quentin clenched his jaw tight. He felt helpless, out of his element. Hokor held all the cards and would until Quentin took over the starting quarterback spot. Quentin's mouth closed in a tight-lipped snarl, but he said nothing. Hokor stared at him for another five seconds until Quentin jogged to the sidelines and started doing 30 laps around the field. An excerpt from the book Kretorak, Unforeseen Dynasty, by Hammond Gomez. It is almost inconceivable to anyone under the age of 40 that once, not so long ago, no one had even heard of a Kretorakian. Considering that race is almost total control over the galaxy, it is just as inconceivable to those people that the Kretorakians were once looked at as an asset to be claimed, not a military power to be feared. Kretorak is a medium-sized planet, disadvantageously located in a political hot zone near the galactic core. The planet borders the Hera Tribal Accord, the Quith Concordia, and the Rewall Association. It is also uncomfortably close to the last known position of the Prawat Jihad fleet. This proximity proved to be a spark for military conflict. The Kratorakians were centuries behind other races in most technologies, but surprisingly advanced in some areas. Signal detection, for example, is an area in which that race completely outclasses all others. The Kratorakians managed to hide their planet from detection for over 250 years and were completely unknown until they achieved FTL capability in 2639. The existence of a sentient race hidden within a well-explored area stunned every scientist in the galaxy. Military officials of three separate systems saw a potential asset near the border of potential enemies. Within hours of the announcement, the Tribal Accord, the Association, and the Concordia sent diplomatic fleets to Kratorak. All three systems immediately claimed the rights to the new planet. Even as the Galactic Council met to discuss claims to Kratorak, skirmishes erupted between the Hera and Quith fleets just three days after the planet's discovery. Within a week, the skirmishes evolved into minor naval battles, claiming well over 50,000 lives. What had begun as an amazing discovery quickly grew into the potential for a fifth galactic war. Each government sent reinforcements, resulting in three Armada-class fleets circling the planet. In a claimed effort to stem the violence, the Kratorakians sent delegates to every ship in all three fleets. Again, it is inconceivable to young people today that the fleets fell for such a simple ruse. But look at it from the historical standpoint. The Kratorakians were small, seemingly harmless creatures, they had no interspecies battle experience, and they had no military craft. Humans have even described Kratorakians as cute. Nothing was known of them other than the fact that they had FTL capability and can speak every known language, which they had absorbed from centuries of signal monitoring. One small delegate vessel traveled to each ship in all three fleets, but no one suspected just how many Kratorakians could pack into such a confined space. In primitive shuttles that would seat four humans in relative comfort, the Kratorakians packed over 300 shock troops. In addition... No one had ever faced soldiers that moved as fast as the Kratorakians, who can fly up to 45 
miles per hour. The results were almost instant. The Kratorakians seized control of three entire fleets as their soldiers tore through the ships with unheard-of speed, killing most of the crew even before alarms could be sounded. With their borders secure, the Kratorakians launched the largest invasion force the galaxy has ever seen. Like a cell bursting with a deadly virus, over 50,000 transport vessels departed from Kratorak and spread throughout the galaxy. Each vessel contained at least one million Kratorakian soldiers, a force of 50 billion strong. Subsequent research shows the Kratorakians had been planning their attack for 125 years, all the while going undetected by every race in the galaxy. The Kratorakians also shocked established navies with a new tactic, attack by attrition. The landing ships ignored navies and headed straight for the surface of every inhabited planet in the galaxy. Defending navies destroyed tens of thousands of ships, but it's estimated at least five landing vessels touched down on each planet, giving the Kratorakians a ground force of at least five million soldiers that could fly at 45 miles per hour and were armed with high-power entropic accelerator rifles. As astonishing as the figure sounds, the Kratorakians conquered every planet within one week of landing. By 2642, the Kratorakians had the complete surrender of the Planetary Union, League of Planets, Key Empire, Key Rebel Alliance, Purist Nation, Tower Republic, Leaky Collective, Hera Tribal Accord, and the Sclerno Dynasty. The Quith Concordia and the Rawal Association managed to fight off the invading forces and remain independent to this day. You have been listening to The Rookie, book one of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon, superweaponband.com. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.